now I want to have a little bit of a family conversation uh, for our church. Now, you're wondering, maybe you're new here, you're not sure you qualify. You do. Like, good news. Like, we have a very, very low bar for what it means to be part of the family. You're here, and that means you're in the family. Uh, so here's the thing. Uh, when we first started dreaming about South and City Church, um, I know for me, like, when this dream broke into my life, I, I'm quite clear on this. I wasn't dreaming of a big church or a small church. That was just sort of not on my radar. Uh, what we were dreaming about was a church that was faithful to a particular understanding of Jesus and a way of following um, him in the world, uh, a church that was here for the city that we love, and a church that was radically committed to welcoming every kind of person who walks through our doors. Like, we had those kinds of things in mind. We didn't necessarily have in mind a big church or a small church. Um, frankly, that wasn't really as important to us. Uh, but what has happened, if you haven't noticed, is we have sort of transitioned from a small church to what is becoming a, a big church. And I'll be honest, like, I actually find that really gratifying for this simple reason, which is apparently, like, um, what God wants South and City Church to be is something that can serve people well. And so what we've discovered over the past few months is more and more people are finding their way to this community. So when we did our, like, weekly Wednesday night thing, um, like a while ago now, like a year ago, through the winter at the Brick, we would have like 100, 130 people that would show up every week, and we were grateful for that community. And then we started doing Sunday mornings this past April with children's programming and, and Tuesday nights. And then like something like 250 people were showing up every week. And then we moved into Studebaker 112 in this room in July, and that number bumped up a little more. And lately, we've been having between 500 and 600 people uh, show up every single week for the gatherings that happen here on Sundays and Tuesdays. Um, so what we're grateful for is not that we get to be a big church, but that we get to serve uh, that many people and that more people keep finding a home here. And we're, we're quite committed to making room for people. Um, so what that means, though, is that on Sundays, uh, and some of you are like pure Tuesday people, I know, but hang with me because this matters for our whole community. On Sundays, um, especially the 11 a.m., things are like maxed out. So if you get here on a Sunday, it's not uncommon to have to park on the other side of that gate in like 10 degree weather with the wind in your face, with the snow falling, you know what I mean? And you have to walk, you know, from Elkhart County into the building, and then you get in here, and like if you're maybe just a couple minutes late and you drop your kids off at a, at a children's ministry room and you look in there and there's like 73 kids already in the room, and you're not certain if that's legal or, or trust me, like, I think we're okay on fire code, but it's not optimal. And it doesn't fit our vision for children's ministry and the way that we want to care for children in there. And, then, and, then I, and this is what happens to me on Sunday. I often sit kind of back there over there in the, in the bullpen or whatever you want to call that by the, by the soundboard. So I'll look over and I can see people as the service is getting going. I can see people walk in the front door and, you know, the look on their face tells me they just walked from Elkhart County. So they're a little frustrated. And then they drop their kids off and they're happy because we have an amazing children's ministry. And then they get coffee and they're a little happier because they're slightly drugged at that point. And then they come around the corner and they see a room that's just slammed. I mean, like, like really packed. And I, I can actually watch their body language fall just a little bit. And then, we, you know, our greeter team is great, so they'll run over and meet them and let them know there might actually be some seats for them. But all of this is a very long way of saying uh, we need to make more room for people um, because it really matters to us that we welcome people. So uh, I'm telling you now that starting on Sunday, April 1st, which is Easter, we're going to go from three gatherings a week to four gatherings a week. The Tuesday night gathering will stay at the same time, place, same sort of setup. But on Sunday, we're going to go uh, from 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We're going to go to 8.45 a.m., 10.15 a.m., and 11.45 a.m. to try to make more room for people who are looking to be a part of this. Now, um, if you've been with us from the sort of early beginnings, which were like, you know, two weeks ago till today, um, like, I, I just want to acknowledge that for some of us, depending on how you're wired, depending on what church experience you've had, this is like exciting and it's good news, awesome. For some, uh, there may be uh, some feeling of loss. Um, maybe there's a certain kind of intimacy that you experience as a part of this community, and that will change with us a little bit, uh, depending on when you come and, and who you see and which faces make you feel at home here when you walk in and whether they end up at a different gathering time than yours. So uh, I just want to acknowledge that and say, um, I think I understand like, what that could feel like. And I'll be honest, I've actually, I've, I've thought over the last few months and I've had conversations with some mentors and some people who've done what we're doing about whether we just say, sorry, this is just as big as it's going to get and we're not going to make any more room because we don't want to lose that. We don't want to lose that, like, that intimate thing that happens when there's just a couple of gathering times. I've, I've actively entertained that idea to try to sort of preserve this thing that's really good, right? 
Um, but there's a couple of problems with that. I think the first one is that we would be preserving part of what's really good at the expense of something that I think is even more important for our community, which is I don't know how we say that we're here to welcome people and honor people if we decide that we're not willing to make room for people. So in that tension, I, I think we kind of have to navigate that, and I think the right move is to make room for people, right? And secondly, in my experience, anytime God gives you a good thing, you have this good thing that's placed in your hand, and if it's really good, and if you're really grateful for it, and if you really love it, your temptation is to try to just hold it exactly the way it is, right? And the problem is that the good things that God gives are almost always alive, which means they're growing and evolving. It doesn't always mean they're growing numerically, but it means they're growing and evolving and changing. And in my experience, like when God gives you a good thing, you hold it loosely, and you try to dance with it as it grows and evolves and moves forward, right? So that's the plan. And really, I, like, I'm pumped about this because um, I know personally, I'll just say I quit a really good job to do this. And I did it because, like, I believe there's a reason we need to do it. And it's to create this community of grace and peace for our city and the world and to make room for people who don't have a home. And so to see people find that home here is just um, the most gratifying thing. And we want to keep working hard and keep making space for one another. So that's what's going on. I'm super pumped about it. Um, but here's the other thing. Uh, gatherings like take more than like staff, right? Um, there's a lot of ways that we support what happens when we get together at Studebaker. So um, I'm going to ask our greeter team to pass out these cards. I just want to show you this. This is not like a high-pressure cell job, I promise. I'm just going to level with you to make room for people like it takes people, right, uh, to do that, to make gatherings happen. So, um, so this is a card that shows five different ways that volunteers make the gatherings happen at South Bend City Church. Five different teams that you can be a part of to do that. I'm just going to talk you through these briefly. And what I want to let you know is that over the next, this week and next week, we're going to be talking about these with the church and inviting people to jump into one of these opportunities to help us uh, expand our sort of carrying capacity for our gatherings, right? Uh, you'll see here children's ministry, worship team, parking team, hospitality team, and greeter team. Uh, these are five ways you could jump in, and there's a little bit of information about how you would do that and what it takes to be a part of one of those teams. Now, um, side note, I mean this totally sincerely. I've been, like, in the church game for a while now, and I promise you, if you've been wondering how to feel a little more connected in this church, this isn't a sell job. This is just a fact. Like, one of the best ways to feel a little more connected is to find a team that you belong to and to get in the trenches and do a little bit of work on that team. It's just a better way to connect, honestly. It's the way it happens, right? So this is a great opportunity for you if you want to get your hands on the ministry a little bit, if you want to uh, connect a little more here in the trenches, making something happen. And then these are some ways that you could do that. Uh, greeter team, hospitality team, parking team, worship team. I mean, it's all pretty self-explanatory. You'll see it there. And then we have children's ministry. One more word about that. Uh, we are definitely moving from three gathering times a week to four gathering times a week on Sunday, April 1st. That's happening, right? What I don't know is whether we are moving from two Sunday gatherings with children's ministry to three Sunday gatherings with children's ministry or whether we're going to stick with two Sunday gatherings with children's ministry. Here's the deal. We have a killer team of children's ministry volunteers. They work their butts off. They've given their hearts to it. And I'm not going to kill them, Okay. <laughs> We're not going to ask um, the existing team that's already carrying a pretty heavy burden for children's ministry to just carry more burden with the same number of people. I'm not going to do that to our team. So, uh, so if we have enough volunteers to sustain children's programming at all three Sunday gatherings, we'll totally do that. And if we don't right now, we won't do it right now. And then maybe we can grow that team up in the weeks or the months ahead and then add that as we have capacity for it. But I'm just, we're just not going to do that move where we just sort of like pull the trigger and hope that our volunteer team can sustain it when they're already giving so much. So um, that's not like any kind of ultimatum. It's just, um, that's just what we're going to do. Does that sound good? Everybody tracking with me there? Okay. I know on Tuesday that might feel a little removed from some of you guys, but I will say, if you're just sitting around on Sunday morning and Tuesday is like your hang, keep coming to church on Tuesday and like cuddle with some kids on Sunday, right? Like just like go in the nursery, you can rock a baby, it'll be great. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if, that, if that'll work on you guys, but we'll see what happens. Uh, if you'd like to join a team, you could do a couple of things. You could um, go to southbendcitychurch.com slash volunteer, which is written in the middle of that paragraph on the back. There's a little form there. Tell us how you might want to plug in, and we'll follow up with you in the next week. Or check this out. After our gathering tonight, uh, we've got an opportunity for you to talk to somebody who's a part of each one of these areas. Look, these are people who, like, lead these teams. You could find out if you like them or not. 
That's not a bad thing to examine, right? So, so here's the deal. After the gathering, watch me now. After the gathering, if you're interested in the greeter team, just head right over here to this corner, and somebody from our greeter team will be there. If you're interested in band and tech, uh, right over there where all the tech is and the band is, right? Uh, if you're interested in parking lot, right over here. If you're interested in hospitality, getting coffee going in the morning, making a welcoming space, right around that corner there in that sort of lobby area. And then finally, if you're interested in children's ministry, go through those doors into that brightly lit lobby right there. And uh, you're not like signing on the dotted line or anything, but it's a chance for you to ask some questions and let us know that you're interested. That's a very long announcement. Everybody good? Okay. Um, I want to give you a chance to make an offering if you'd like to do that, and our greeters will pass some baskets around, but there's never any pressure. A little later on tonight, uh, we're going to come to Jesus' table, and I just want to let you know a little bit right now about that for our community. Um, First of all, for our community, the table of Jesus is open to anyone who wants to be at the table with Jesus, full stop, period, end of story, right? So if you're wondering, maybe you've been told, maybe you've been someplace where you weren't sure if you were welcome at the table, I'm just here to tell you, Anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus is welcome at this table with Jesus. So that's going on a little later on. Uh, When we do that, you'll head to one of the corners where communion is being served, and you'll just hold out an open hand. You don't have to take the bread. You don't have to rip anything. You just kind of hold out an open hand, and somebody's going to put a piece of this bread in your hand. And it's gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, like everything free, so like super safe for like any known allergic experience whatsoever. And then you'll hold on to it, and somebody will remind you the body of Christ broken for you. And then you'll just take a step over and somebody will hold out a cup. And uh, don't, don't drink the cup. Don't, don't take the cup and drink it. I know that depending on your tradition, that might be the normal thing. But here, you'll just take the bread and you'll, you'll dip it in the cup. And then after you've dipped the bread in the cup and somebody's reminded you the blood of Christ shed for you, you can take the bread and eat it and return to your seat. So that's what's going on a little bit later. Now to the topic at hand. Uh, this is the period of Lent, the season uh, where the church around the world moves toward Good Friday and Easter in preparation and meditation, thinking about what the death of Christ might mean for us, what the resurrection of Christ might mean for us, and how to sort of live our lives in harmony with those movements in the story of Jesus. So um, that whole package, right, like the death of Jesus, um, if you've been around religion or if you've been around Christian religion, you've probably at least gotten the impression that it's in some way a big deal for Christians, right? Like most churches have a cross on the wall somewhere or a crucifix, maybe like very central in the space, right? Um, maybe you've heard preachers talk a lot about the cross or you've heard songs that harp on the cross. Or maybe you've seen in the scriptures that apparently what's going on in, in the death of Jesus seems to be pretty darn important. Like for example, uh, in this scripture in Corinthians, This is a letter that Paul writes to a church, and he says, I hand it on to you as of first importance, as of like top-line priority, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He says like that's first importance, right? Or how about this uh, from Colossians, uh, another letter written to a church. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him Christ God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Now maybe that's like very familiar language or maybe like it's very bizarre to you that we're talking about blood and a cross and God and peace. However you're relating to that, um, today what we wanted to do is just explore the fact that uh, for the last 2,000 years, the followers of Jesus have been having a conversation with one another. Like through history and and theology, the church has been grappling with what does the cross mean? Like what's going on in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus? Why does it matter to us, right? And so um, today what we thought we would do is sort of uh, jump into a survey of all of that thinking. And so I'm inviting a friend up to the stage. You might have seen him up here before. Will you guys please welcome uh, Chad Meister? Yeah. Chad is... uh, I think in our prayer before our gathering, I described you as erudite and esteemed, and I still believe those things about you. Uh, Chad's a professor. You were laughing when you said that. Though. No, I, everybody else was laughing. Um, <laughs> Chad is a professor of philosophy and theology at Bethel College uh, here in town. Uh, Chad is a, like, I mean this, he's like a bona fide, legitimate, uh, sort of scholarly expert on the history of Christian thought and the ways that the church has, has grappled with these ideas. Uh, he's also like a dear friend of mine. He's a member of our board. He's a mentor of mine. And so um, I'm really grateful to kind of bring you into a conversation that Chad and I often have, like sitting on his back patio around a fireplace uh, till late in the night, although not as late the older we've both gotten. Um, 
here's the deal. So I, I've asked Chad to kind of work with us through different moments in the history of the church and different ways that people have grappled with, like, what's going on, what's happening in the death of Jesus. It's kind of a fly, it's like a quick flyby, okay? Like, like, like there's a lot packed into this, and uh, we're going to move quickly through a few different perspectives. So let yourself off the hook from, like, you know, remembering all of this or tracking with every little detail or walking out with a whole puzzle put together. Because if I were, like, in your shoes, I don't know if that's realistic for any of us in this kind of an encounter, especially if some of these ideas are new to you, right? What I hope happens in our next few minutes is you might, um, you might discover there's, that there's a spaciousness in the tradition that you didn't know about. Because sometimes if you've been told there's only one way to think about this in the Christian tradition, that can be kind of cramped, right? And I, what you might discover is there's actually a spaciousness. There's different ways of wrestling with these things. Um, you might get a little sort of disoriented. And I actually think that's okay, because in my experience, all, all the kind of deep learning that's happened in my life has included moments when I get kind of disoriented, right? It kind of sets me into a place where I don't quite know, and I thought I knew, and then I don't quite know, and that takes me into a deeper learning. So that'd be okay if that happens to you today, okay? Um, but maybe as we talk through this, listen with your brain, but also maybe listen with your heart, and just see if anything gets stirred up, see if anything like rings a bell within you or connects somewhere. And uh, after this, we'll move to the table together and that'll be sort of our final movement. You guys down for, for hanging with us for a bit? Okay, awesome. Yeah, Chad. So let's, uh, let's go back in history, Chad. Take us on a, a time trip and let's go back to like second or third century, like early, early in the, in the history of the church. Mm -hmm. And let's say we could all together go someplace where there's a bunch of Christians, maybe like Jerusalem or something like that. And... Um, and let's say that we could find somebody like you, like somebody who uh, is a voice who kind of represents the way Christians are thinking about this. And we just asked someone in the second or third century, what's going on in the death of Jesus? Why are the Christians all excited about it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. What would we hear? Are you on there? Uh, um, yes, I am. Yes. So if we could put ourselves back in time for a bit, um, let's put ourselves in the beginning of the, of the, of the 100s. So this is the second century. So this is called the patristic age. The patristic, uh, that's from the Latin word pater, which means father. This is, these are the, called the church fathers, the theologians, who were very influential in the church. And this is the period when um, the idea of the meaning of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was being formulated into doctrine. And so this is kind of the formative period of, of church history. And when we think about the cross today, I think for many people, the idea is that the cross is meaningful because there God did something that he was requiring. Namely, he was requiring the death of someone because of sin. But in the early church, that's not really how it was understood. And so one of the most influential theologians in uh, in, the, in the second century. This is in the 100s now. It gets confusing, right? The 100s is the second century. The earliest periods here of the patristic age. There's a fellow named Irenaeus. Irenaeus, very important theologian. And as he thought about what was going on, he um, was dealing with a period of time here in the early church when there were a lot of questions about who Jesus was exactly. Mm -hmm. Because in the Bible it says, in the book of John, chapter 1, it says this, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking about Jesus, who was the Word, who was with God and was God, and then became flesh. So this, is the, this became known as the doctrine of the incarnation, where God became human. Yeah. And so these kind of questions are going on in this period. And so this theologian Irenaeus, he asked this question, why did God do that? Why did God become human? Why did he become yeah. human? And how does that connect up with his life on this, uh, on this planet? How does that connect up with then his death and his resurrection? What's the meaning of all this? And his conclusion was the meaning of Jesus becoming human was that he was saving us. He was uh, redeeming us. He was, he was um, rescuing us from our, from our sin. And how did he do that? For Irenaeus, he did that by becoming human. Now you might think, no, wait a minute, he did yeah. that by becoming human. I'm confused. It's kind right? of like, yeah, what's, what, how's that work out, right? Like, what's the formula, the mechanism? Like, 
big deal. So exactly, yeah. yeah. And and that what's the cross here? I thought the cross was so important, right? Yeah. Yeah. For the early Christians, this is really interesting. For the early Christians, the cross wasn't the central feature or the central aspect of mm -hmm. salvation. It was rather the incarnation, because for Irenaeus and many of these theologians, the idea was that in Adam, humanity fell into sin. That's how we became alienated from God through Adam and through our own sin. We are alienated. We're separated from God. He's holy, perfect, righteous, and just. We're sinful. We're alienated from him. How can we be brought into a relationship with him? How can, how can this broken relationship be reconciled? And for these early theologians, it's reconciled through the incarnation. Yeah, so, we, uh, so this shows up like in, um, in a passage from Romans here, I think we've got, right? Yeah. Yes, in fact, um, yes, if I could just read this here real yeah, quick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification, justification in life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So the idea here is that through Adam, sin entered the world, humanity um, became corrupt, we became alienated from God, but through Christ, the second Adam, all is made right. Christ, in becoming human, literally repairs fallen humanity and literally, therefore, brings us into a reconciled relationship with God. So like in this passage, the one man is Adam and the other one man is Jesus. Exactly. And this is confusing because there's all these fancy words like righteousness and justification and all that, but it seems like you could at least start with the logic goes, if, if they understand from the scriptures that Adam's sin, Adam's a human being and Adam's sin can be a problem for all of us, then the logic might go somehow, I don't maybe get the metaphysics of it, but Jesus also being a man, but being divine and not having a sin problem, if one man can kind of infect the whole race, then one man might be able to heal the whole race. Exactly. By sort of being a part of this experience with us. Yes, yeah, yes. Okay. In fact, so in the incarnation, when God became human, humanity was restored, and therefore we were brought into this relationship with God. Now, we still needed to repent and live a life, surrender to him, but it was through this process. The technical term here is recapitulation. Got that? Big name, recapitulation. Yeah, okay. It's R-E, capitulation. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. And, uh, yes. and, and so, uh, recapitulation, the, the, the reason it's that <laughs> word is because the idea is that um, Jesus is going through the process, kind of starting the whole process of humanity over again. Yeah. Adam messed it all up. Yeah. He's going to make it right, yeah. and he does that. And so then, so it's really, the incarnation is the reconciliation. The incarnation is the atonement. So, so does the cross show up at all in that idea? The, the cross shows up in this way. Um, so Jesus, who is God in flesh, lives a perfect life, but a perfect life lived in this evil and fallen world is going to be killed because it's a sinful fallen world. And so the cross comes about not because of what God is demanding, but because of what evil people have done. Right. And so uh, evil people kill Christ, and then he is, uh, because he is God in flesh, death can't hold him down. He rises from the dead and defeats uh, the powers of evil and darkness. Yeah, okay, so that's, that's very early. That might be a little different than what you're used to hearing about, like, how salvation works in the Christian story. That's interesting. Let's go a little, uh, a little further um, into another idea. Let's talk about Chris's victor and ransom and how those fit together. Yeah, so also in the early church, there was another view. And by the way, this, uh, this recapitulation was a very popular view that lasted for about a thousand years. Another very popular view that lasted also for about a thousand years is sometimes called the ransom theory or the ransom model of reconciliation or atonement. And this idea um, was articulated by many people, in particular a theologian named Gregory of Nyssa who lived in the 300s. Yeah, it's like 335 to 395, somewhere around there. And a very Somewhere, give or take. Give or take a year or two. <laughs> he was a very important theologian um, because he is one who developed the doctrine of the Trinity in a very sophisticated way in the doctrine of, of the two natures of Christ, that Jesus was both human and divine. So he was very influential in the early formulations of these doctrines. Mm -hmm. And um, what he did is he looked at a, a, a few passages in Scripture that have a word ransom in them. Like, uh, like Mark 10 here, right? For the right. Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right. And so by he, the way, Son of Man there is another way of referring to Christ or Jesus in the Scriptures. Right, yeah. right. 
So, you know, there are different ways of taking words mm -hmm. in scripture. You can take them literally, you can take them metaphorically, you can take them poetically. Um, he took this word literally, uh, Gregory Missenden, and he said, okay, Jesus gave his life as a ransom. Um, he was buying something back, right? This was redemption. He was, he was paying his life uh, as a ransom. A ransom for whom? Well, who needs to be ransomed? We do. We do, because, because we are in a fallen state. We are in a situation in which we're, we're sinners. We're really under the authority of the devil, he said. And as those who are under the authority of the devil, we need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. And so Jesus offered his life as a ransom. That is, he was paying someone, namely the devil, to redeem us, to free us from the clutches of the evil one. Mm -hmm. And so what he did then, Jesus, is he gave his life uh, as a ransom to the devil. The devil freed humanity, so we were redeemed. And in this redemptive state now, we can be reconciled to God. But the, the trade-off didn't go as the devil thought, because the devil thought he was gaining the Son of God, releasing humanity, when in fact he released humanity and gained nothing, hmm. because he couldn't hold the Son of God. Yeah, so, so, so if, if, if we have a hostage situation, right, in this, in this way of working it out, humanity is the hostage, right? Um, we're being held hostage. We, we know that we're hostage because of sin, because of our, our struggle against sin. Uh, it's sort of the universal human experience that we don't, like, live the way we want to, and, and we have this problem. And in this rendering, humanity is hostage. Satan holds us hostage, and he says, I'll, God, I'll give you back humanity. You can have them back. They can be healed and saved. But I need something in exchange. And Jesus has given as the, the price, the ransom price. Exactly. Right? Yep. Yep. And that's especially in the death of Jesus. Is that right? Yes. Okay, right. gotcha. So now we've moved from, like, in this instance, it's not maybe so much the incarnation, the life. It's specifically God dies, Jesus dies, and that's, that's Satan's prize or price for giving humanity back. Right. But right. it doesn't go the way he thought. It doesn't go the way he thought. Yeah. You can see this imagery played out in uh, C.S. Lewis's work, The Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, any fans? Yeah, okay. So you have the, uh, the white witch who's representing the devil. You have Edmund who's representing humanity. So Edmund betrays his family. Mm -hmm. He's going to be killed by the white witch. And then Aslan, who represents Christ, um, ransoms himself uh, for Edmund. Mm -hmm. And what the White Witch didn't know was the, was the deep magic the of deep Narnia. Magic. The deep yeah. magic, right? In which if an innocent person offers his life, death can't hold that person down. And so, so Aslan offers his life. Uh, he's killed, but then he rises from the dead. So he's freeing both As, uh, Edmund and himself, yep. Aslan is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so some of the writings that Chad and I were looking at from some of these early thinkers, right? It's kind of bizarre, but hang with me. They describe Jesus as like the bait on a fish hook right? So Satan like bites down on the bait, not knowing that Jesus's divinity is the hook that's hidden in the flesh. And if you're thinking, I got to go read some early patristic writings, you're right. This stuff's very juicy, right? Like very interesting. Uh, I, I use the phrase flesh package on Sunday, which I didn't really mean to, um, but I used it again for you guys, just so you're not missing out because we're very committed to Tuesday having the same experience as Sunday. So um, anyway, so you've got like a peculiar way of working that out, but this is ransom. And then there's also maybe an, a, a variation on that that we would call Christus Victor. Yeah, so really in both of these early theories, there's, there's an aspect that's called Christus Victor. Sometimes it's emphasized with the ransom theory, but really with both of these. The idea of Christus Victor, it's a Latin phrase, uh, so Christ is victorious. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that Christ, with the ransom theory, the devil thought he had him down. Um, but no, he, he was victorious. He rose from that. He defeated the powers of evil and darkness. And uh, we too can defeat the powers of evil and darkness by being with him and in him, in a relationship with him. Somebody espousing the Christus Victor view might uh, point to this passage from John, right? That there's some language here. Caleb, you got, yeah, there we go. Uh, so this is Jesus speaking in John's gospel. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, who here would be Satan, right? The prince of this world will be driven out. So, it, like, you know, Jesus is coming in conquering and pushing out this other uh, person who has a claim. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He's going to die on a cross, and somehow through that act, the prince of this world will lose his claim on the world. Something like that, right? Right. I, I told the church on, on Sunday, uh, I actually had Chad as a professor in one class in college, and he gave me a C-minus. 
<laughs> so now I'm wondering if I, I like, get an A, like if you could go back and revise that a little bit for my transcript. And he said I would get like a B minus now. <laughs> Is that right? I think you're working in the A range now at this point. Thank so. you. That's very kind. Things have evolved from Sunday. So, um, okay. So a couple of thoughts here. So things might feel a little weird right now. You're like fish hooks and bait and divinity. I, that's bizarre. A couple of things for you. First of all, it's interesting to discover um, that both of these theories seem to take uh, sin really seriously. And I'll find myself sometimes in a conversation with someone who's had some bad religion in their life, um, maybe gotten a, a kind of contorted um, message about what Christian faith is or, or what's going on in Jesus. And sin is a word that you use to beat people up and to you know, condemn them, to put guilt on them. And so then maybe the conversation around sin is really uncomfortable. Um, but I'll often ask them, I'm like, you're not saying there's nothing wrong in the world, right? Because there's some stuff that's wrong in the world. I'm, like, can we, can we start there? Like, like there's, there's evil in the world. I mean, whether it's um, what happened in a school in Florida just a few days ago, or whether it, it's any number of um, many things we could describe in our own community or in our own homes, in our own histories, um, even in our own sort of personal track record, like there, there, there are ways that things aren't the way they ought to be, right? And one thing I appreciate right out of the gate here, whether it's this recapitulation thing or this ransom thing, is whether the, the details of it are bizarre to you or don't seem like that's really what the Bible's doing or like whether you're having a hard time connecting with it, I so appreciate that this conversation seems to be taking very seriously that something has broken the world and that if God is who we believe God to be, God would want to do something about that. And then we turn to this sort of story of Jesus and what seems to be sort of at the epicenter of this movement of God in the world. And we, we look there to see what God is doing about evil. And again, even if the details are a little bizarre for you or you're like, the whole thing sounds like hogwash, which is okay if you think that. Like, I at least appreciate that in this historic conversation, there's, there's a really serious view toward the fact that things are not the way they ought to be. And God seems to want to do something about that in Jesus, right? Um, yeah, Chad, do you want to move on? Uh, let's, so this has all been pretty unfamiliar, probably, unless you've you know, been staying up late at night reading patristic sources. Um, now I, I want to move a little further. We're going to get closer to what's familiar, uh, okay. but let's go to Anselm and talk a little bit about what he's doing. Yeah, so one theme that runs throughout all of Christian history, even up to our own day, is that um, reconciliation is needed, that we're, we're alienated from God and that we need to be reconciled. Um, and in... Uh, the year 1098, there was a theologian whose name was Anselm, Anselm, who was the bishop, of, the Archbishop of Canterbury at this time in England, who uh, was a theologian and a monk and a scholar and a philosopher, and he was very studied in church history, and he was deeply troubled by these earlier views of atonement, because while he agreed with the earlier uh, thinkers and theologians that Yes, our problem is alienation, and the solution is Christ, and Christ is the one who saves us. He didn't really like the way they were working out how that uh, operation of reconciliation was functioning. Because Anselm said, with one of the views, it seems immoral, and with the other view, it seems incomplete. So how's it, what's immoral, what's incomplete? Yeah, so with the ransom view, Anselm said, this seems immoral because here you have... God, the, the king of the universe, right? The one who's infinite in wisdom and righteousness and holiness. And his plan of salvation is through trickery and deception. Huh. So and he's the gonna, trickery is, is duping Satan into thinking that he could have Jesus. Exactly, right. right. Okay. So this is God's salvation strategy. I'm going to trick the devil, pretend like I'm giving him something that I'm not really giving him, and uh, win back my people, right? So the whole, the whole okay. view is based on grand deception, and Anselm said, God is not a great deceiver. This view can't be right. Okay. He was troubled by the recapitulation view because he thought that, well, there's something missing here. Namely, um, there's something that we've done in our sin against God, and this recapitulation doesn't seem to address that problem. Yes, yeah, so recapitulation sees sin, but it's, it doesn't see really God, like, offended by that or right. God needing to, like, act on it for God's sake. Exactly. Okay. Right. So what's Anselm going to do about it? And so Anselm's question focused on, um, on a question that the earlier theologians had focused on, which is, why did God become human? And Anselm wrote a book that literally, in, in, in fact, changed the trajectory of atonement views in the Western world, uh, even up until this, own day, uh, mm -hmm. to this day. 
Anselm wrote a book called, in Latin, Cur Deus Homo, which is translated as Why God Became Human. And in this book, what Anselm argued was, here's why God became human. Humanity sinned against God. We sinned against him. We're alienated uh, against God. We owe God something because we've sinned against him. We owe him a great debt. We've dishonored him. And it's important to note that Anselm's writing here in the medieval period, you know, this is the uh, 11th and 12th century when he's writing, and this is, there's a feudal system that he's operating in where you have this. F-E-U-D-A-L. Yeah, F-E, yeah. And you have, you know, masters and lords, you have serfs and peasants, and if a peasant in any way dishonored or offended a lord, that was a serious problem. Um, and so he had a debt that had to be paid if he dishonored a lord. It wasn't an egalitarian society, by the way. If, you, if you're a peasant, you offend another peasant, that's one thing. If you're a peasant, you offend a lord, that's a big deal. Well, we've offended the king of the universe. That's a very, very big deal because mm -hmm. he's infinite in holiness, righteous justice, and so forth. And so how big is our debt? It's an infinite debt, he said. So it's a human debt because humans are the ones who have sinned. It's an infinite debt because God is perfectly holy and just and infinite in all ways. So we've, our sin has become an infinite sin. So to satisfy the honor of God, then, to, to pay back the debt, it's going to take an infinite a price. How can we do that? We're not infinite, we're finite. So it's going to have to be a human who pays the debt, and it's going to have to be a human of infinite worth who pays the debt. Well, there is one person who can do that, namely Jesus of Nazareth. So if you dishonor a God of infinite greatness, you have an infinite debt of dishonor, and you need somehow like infinite honor to be given by a human who sort of represents all of us having disrespected that infinite greatness. Exactly. So Jesus is being both human and God. Being human, he can do it on our behalf. Being divine, it's, it's an infinite gift when he dies. Exactly. So it's infinitely honoring and restores, it puts all that back together. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So Jesus sacrificed his life for us. Now, what's, what's interesting here is for Anselm, the sacrifice of Jesus was not the death on the cross either. Just like for the earlier mm -hmm. theologians, it wasn't the sacrifice of death. It was the sacrifice of life. He gave his whole life completely surrendered to God. And it was in living a perfect life surrendered fully to God, that's what satisfied uh, the debt that needed to be paid. And so, yes, Jesus was killed, but again, who was he killed by? Who was demanding the death of Christ? It wasn't God. It was the evil people and uh, evil ones, evil powers. Those are the ones who were trying to kill Christ and who killed him. And then, of course, he rose from the dead in vindication of who he really was. But his life sacrificed was his life lived, not his life on the cross. Okay. Yeah. So Anselm's writing 1099, and then we're going to skip forward a little bit. And now we're going to move to um, what might be an even more sort of familiar package of ideas if you've been around, especially if you've been around a Protestant Christian religion. Um, we're, let's talk about a guy named John Calvin. What's going on yeah. around him? So we're going to jump ahead now, uh, several hundred years, 400 years in fact, to the 1500s, and there's a theologian named John Calvin. Calvin was a very important person in the Protestant Reformation. So Calvin, along with Luther, Martin Luther, and Ulrich Zwingli, these are three of the main players of the Protestant Reformation. Um, Calvin, what he did is he looked at this whole history of atonement again, and he said, you know, Anselm was doing something very helpful here, very helpful, in recognizing that it was a sin against God, dishonoring God that was a problem. But Anselm missed something, Calvin said. What he missed was the gravity of our sin. Not just that we dishonored God, but rather because God is holy and righteous and just. We in our sin have offended God in such a serious way that it needs to be addressed. And the only way to address this kind of radical evil, this kind of radical sin, is through punishment. Okay, so punishment is what's required because of sin. So, so we've moved from God needing to be honored properly, like in a feudal system, right. to God needing to inflict punishment to maintain a particular idea of justice. Right. Okay. So Calvin's dealing with the notion of justice. That's a very um, ancient view. It goes back to the Greeks and the Romans. And the idea of justice here is that justice is paying back what you owe someone. Good for good, evil for evil. Eye for an eye. 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? It's that kind of justice that Calvin is looking at. And so it's a retributive kind of justice. That is, um, something has been done wrong, human beings have sinned, so they need to be punished. Yeah. And so, uh, and the punishment needs to be uh, of infinite value here because our sin against God, again, like Anselm said, is an infinite sin now. And so, what Calvin argued was, um, what human can take on the sin that we deserve? What human can be our substitute who himself is infinitely worthy, who can take on our sin as a human being and offer himself to God as divine, as infinitely worthy. Who can do that? There's only one person, namely Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ was our penal substitute. Penal meaning punishment. This I is feel like on Tuesday night, it's okay for me to say that. If I'm not allowed to say flesh package, you're not allowed to keep saying penal on this stage. Okay. So you said it once, everybody heard it. Okay, right. I'll, 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 I'll. right. So it has to do with punishment, right? And, and the idea is that uh, Jesus was punished yep on our behalf. He was yeah. our substitute. He was punished. Um, how severely was he punished? He was punished to death. Right. But um, being also God, he, death couldn't hold him down. He rose from the, uh, from the dead in vindication of us. So again, the emphasis here is on the death of Christ, right, yeah. as being the sacrifice that was our atonement. So a couple observations. Everybody doing okay? Hanging in there? Uh, a couple observations. Um, you notice Anselm lives in a feudal system with lords and peasants. And then he kind of, he comes to understand what's the meaning of the death of Jesus through a feudal metaphor, right? Calvin is a lawyer, by the way. John Calvin is a lawyer. He, he works in a particular justice system at that time. And then he, he comes to see this through the lens of his context, too, which is interesting. Um, and then I also note that, um, and you and I have talked about this before, but if, you, if you're paying attention in these different sort of iterations or, or theories or whatever, um, the problem's kind of located in different places, and the effect is located in different places. So watch this. Like the first one, Adam and humanity, right? Humanity's fallen because of Adam, and humanity needs healed, might be a word for it, right? Restored away from sin. So the effect is sort of on us, right? Uh, in in uh, Ransom and Christus Victor, Satan has a grip on us, and so the real thing is you've got to get Satan to let go of Satan's grip. Right? So the, the, act, the, the effect is mostly on Satan to relinquish his grip on humanity, right? And then in Anselm and Calvin, the effect is kind of in God, right? God has been dishonored. God needs God's honor restored. Or God needs to punish because if God doesn't punish, God can't uh, forgive or can't overlook our sins. So like, there's a problem in God that we've created through our sin, right? Right. Okay. So um, I, I just want to observe that and note that... Um, that you could think about or you could wrestle with the meaning of, of what's going on with Jesus dying in those ways, like, like how is that acting in the cosmos, in, in the world, right? Um, I've shared a story before, like if you've heard me uh, preaching or, or told you much about my experience of God, um, but like, I, like I've had an experience of my life where the, the particular effect of the cross, of the death of Jesus, it wasn't on God, but it was on me and, and it was a turning point in my life. I was in college and I was uh, clinically depressed and really, really struggling with some wounds that I was trying to heal from, uh, from my childhood, some trauma there. And um, for like four years, I felt like I did everything right. Um, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And it got to be embarrassing because it got to a point where my, my mental health issues were known to a small little intimate community of 2,000 people that I was going to college with. And it sucked. And I spent uh, 10 days in a hospital for it. And while after that hospitalization, I experienced a lot of healing in my mental health, um, I started getting really, really upset with God. And in fact, what was happening is like a distance was growing between me and my experience of God. I was less and less interested in knowing God. In fact, I was very angry. I was journaling. I was writing things down. I was protesting and saying like, God, you really are fickle. Like, if you're there at all, you're not what I thought you were because I did everything I thought I was supposed to do, and it hurt more and more and more and more, and I felt more and more alone. And I, like, I latched onto uh, a prayer from the Bible like to argue my case, and I was using a paraphrased version of the Bible that had really vivid language in the Psalms, and I needed vivid language at that point because I had words in my journal that I'm not allowed to use on the stage here about my feelings toward God. And so I grabbed this really vivid uh, prayer that says the same thing. In the Bible, it says, God, you're fickle, God, you abandon us. God, you leave us when we need you. 
And like I festered on that for quite a while before I realized that the psalm I had landed on was actually a, a more familiar psalm that had I read it in a more familiar translation, I would have recognized it. Because in um, a translation I'm more familiar with, I realized after quite a while um, that the psalm begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, if you know the Christian story, you might know that that's the prayer that Jesus prays on a cross. So in, in, that's a moment in my life where what the, what's happening on the cross is into an experience where God felt impossibly far away. In, in that prayer, like, it was like a before and after moment in my life. Like, it turned my life up, upside, or maybe right side up, I don't know. Like, um, to discover that, that through the cross, I've come to understand God being the kind of God who is so deeply in solidarity with us in our human experience, like, so with us in our suffering, that paradoxically, God even knows what it feels like to feel like God is far away, which, I don't know how the metaphysics of that work, I don't really care. Like, but, that, but that's a moment where the cross worked on me. And it healed me in a really powerful way, right? So it's interesting to observe whether it's like theologically or experientially, we can describe this as the cross working on us or working on God or, or whatever. And it's just interesting to kind of, if you're trying to make sense of these different ways of thinking about it, notice where is the activity, right? Like where is the effect? You, you want to say anything else about that? Yeah, so it was interesting that uh, Calvin's, uh, well, he wrote about this in a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion back in the 1500s. True story, by the way, I, I ordered this in college. It's that thick, seriously. And I put it next to my bed and I would read it when I couldn't fall asleep at night because it would put me to sleep like that. True story. My professor in seminary actually uh, took the institutes on his honeymoon and read through the whole thing during <laughs> his honeymoon. That's so weird. It's so you know, weird. Who would do that? I mean, I, I took Augustine's you know, City of God. I mean, it's not so much. 800 pages. So, but in the 1500s, he wrote about this, and it literally swept, uh, swept the West, swept, mm -hmm. swept through Europe, and is, is very uh, popular even to this mm -hmm. day, mm -hmm. right? This idea that Jesus, I'm not going to say the word, but that Jesus paid the penalty. punishment? Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. God was um, requiring the death of an individual, the death of all of us, and he took our place. That's mm -hmm. become a very popular view. That's um, not held widely by theologians today, even though it is still widely held by many people. Mm -hmm. but, but many people, including some theologians, are, are, are bothered by that idea, namely that God was requiring the death of an individual. And so one point I want to make here is that um, that is one way of looking at this, um, but it's not the only way of looking at this. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you're troubled by that view of atonement, just realize that that's just one view that Christians um, have held, but it's not the only view, and uh, there are other ways to look at what's going on with the cross. Yeah, so, um, so that's a little survey of some moments in history, some perspectives, right? I want to observe, too, that um, in each of those sort of theories of atonement, uh, or whatever you want to call it, there's different understandings of the meaning of forgiveness and how forgiveness works, the meaning of justice, like what is just, and how does God get justice? Like if God wants justice, or if God requires justice, like, well, what's your definition of justice, right? Um, reconciliation, there's a lot of like concept level things that work there, and we don't have to work all that out tonight, and you don't have to know what you think about all that, but it, let's at least observe that you, we all bring assumptions about those things to the table, and you can see assumptions at work in these different things, right? Like maybe let's talk about forgiveness for just a second. Yeah. So when you think about um, forgiveness, there are different ways of thinking about it. Um, one kind of simple definition of forgiveness is, is, is giving forward. If someone, if someone has done something against you, are you going to hold that against them, or are you going to not hold that against them anymore? Hmm. And so um, in the New Testament, Jesus gives a parable, a beautiful parable, about the heart of God in terms of the way God thinks about forgiveness. And this is in the book of Luke, in Luke 15, in the prodigal son. Because here you have, you may know the story, here you have the prodigal son, the son who has um, basically um, slapped his father in the face, metaphorically speaking, taken his inheritance from his father, and then he ran off, and then he squanders it all on sort of illicit uh, living. And then he comes to his senses when he's in utter poverty, and he realizes, wait a minute, my father can provide for food at least. I'm eating this pig slop. My father at least can provide food. I'll, I'll tell him how sorry I am. I'll go back to my father, tell him how sorry I am, and hopefully maybe, just perhaps maybe, he will let me come back home. And so he, he heads back home. His father 
it says in the story, sees him far off. That is, his father was waiting, longing, looking for him. His father sees him, and when he sees him, he runs after him. He gets ready to throw his arms around him, and just before he does that, he says, son, you owe me, pay me back now. No, that's, you know the story? No, that's, that's not what happened, right? <laughs> just that's making sure everybody's still paying attention. <laughs> right. No, no, he doesn't do that at all. He just puts his arm around him, uh, hugs him, mm-hmm. gives him a kiss, and says, we're going to kill the fat calf, we're going to have a party, uh, we're going to celebrate because you were lost and now you're found. That's the, that's the heart of forgiveness that Jesus is describing here of, of God the Father. And, and it's not one, in this particular case, it's not one of requiring payment before forgiveness can happen. So one question here in thinking about the nature of forgiveness is, when God forgives, does he have to have something in return or not? Mm-hmm. And it seems like the answer is no. Yet reconciliation can't fully happen in forgiveness unless something is done. So think about this. Suppose somebody did something to you. Suppose someone did something to you. They, they offended you. Can you forgive them without them paying you back? Suppose somebody drove in the parking lot tonight with their car. They don't have insurance and, and smashed into your car and, and destroyed it. Suppose that you didn't realize that your insurance had expired. So neither one of you has insurance and now your car is destroyed. And this person was just goofing around, sliding around in the rain out there, smashed your car. and. After he did this, he realized, wow, I've really done something wrong. He comes in here, finds out who you are, and says, I'm sorry, this is what happened. I've destroyed your car. I'm really, really sorry. Will you forgive me? Please, can you please forgive me? And you say, sure, absolutely, I forgive you as soon as you pay me back. Is that forgiveness? That doesn't seem to be forgiveness. On the other hand, suppose that somebody did something to you that was very harmful to you personally. Somebody really hurt you personally. Can you forgive them if they do nothing? I think the answer is yes, you can forgive them. But can you be reconciled to them? It seems like reconciliation requires something on their part as well. Mm-hmm. And so the idea here with atonement is that God forgives us, God loves us all and, and forgave us, and then there needs to be reconciliation. What's involved in that reconciliation between us and God? This is where these different theories give different answers. And some of the more recent theories or models of atonement have said, well, what we need to do to be reconciled to God is we need to repent. We say, we say we're sorry, and, and that's it. Hmm. God wasn't requiring the death of anyone on these new th- theories of atonement. And so this is another way to look at it. And again, the question I think you know, that uh, can be very important here if we're thinking about what Jesus did on the cross is what was God asking of us? What was God asking of Christ? And Theologians have given have given different answers throughout the centuries. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, just for sort of further reading, if uh, anybody's still interested, um, there's there's just in the same way that Calvin was working uh, 500 years ago and 500 years before that, Anselm was working. I mean, there's really interesting work being done today. There's a guy named Rene Girard who died just a little while ago, Frenchman, professor at Stanford University, who um, has been you know wrestling with violence and where violence comes from. Uh, he starts in literature and ends up in the Gospels and does some really interesting work on that. There's a guy named Greg Boyd who's a pastor and theologian, that some of you might know that name a little bit, who's um, cranking out some really interesting work wrestling with violence and if violence is really, um, in Jesus it seems he's saying violence is incompatible with the nature of God. The cross is such a violent act, then what do we do with that? Uh, we're not going to get into that tonight, but I just want to point and say there's the conversation that keeps happening, right? There's ways of continuing to wrestle with this stuff. Now, um, Chad, you're a person who, you know, you live deeply in these ideas. Um, there's a lot of things on the table. Let me just uh, throw this list at you guys, and don't try to remember this. It's fine, but let's just observe in the scriptures all these different uh, ways of bringing this up. In, in some places in the scriptures, there's the language of Jesus defeating sin and death. We see elsewhere that Jesus' life is a ransom for many. We see that Jesus is our sacrifice of atonement, a sacrificial lamb, a sin offering, our scapegoat. He took our punishment. He bore our sins. He turned away God's wrath against us or sin. He defeated the powers of darkness and death. His blood washes us from sin. He revealed God's love for the world. Uh, He gave us a perfect moral example to follow. He gave us new life in God. He released us from bondage to sin. He made us righteous. He justified us. His death brought forgiveness of sins. Uh, or through Jesus, we're crucified to the world. That's a lot of different images. And your brain might be thinking, well, how do I work it all out? Or how do I make sense of it? And I'm curious for a guy like you, Chad, where you, you spend a lot of time in all of that. Like, how do, 
how do you work that out or like how do you pray through that or how does that affect you when you think about this? Yeah, so um, there's a group of theologians uh, called Eastern Orthodox theologians. So you find these especially in um, Russia, for example, but there are many Eastern Orthodox theologians even here in the United States and other parts of the world. And um, they come from a tradition that looks at all the beautiful images in the Bible, that looks at the language that we just looked at. And they have a view that I, I really appreciate because they say um, there are all these different theories of what Jesus was doing on the cross different theories of what God was requiring or what God was not requiring and so forth. But rather than try to push the logic too far into the depths and mystery of Christ and God and the cross and all of that, let's just stay with the beautiful imagery that the Bible gives us. And let's look at that and realize that yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, Jesus was a scapegoat. Yes, Jesus was a ransom. Yes, he was a savior of the world. Yes, he was all of these things, but there's no theory that captures all of that. There's just, there's just no theory that captures all that. So rather than worry about a particular theory of atonement, let's just look at the beautiful imagery. And for me, at the end of the day, I look at what Jesus did. I say, Jesus came, God in the flesh, lived a life, a perfect life, sinless life for us. He did that for us. That's a beautiful thing, and I'm grateful to him for that. And when I enter into this Lenten season and, and uh, the practices that I do, I really focus on that, and I'm thankful to that. And I don't get bogged down in the metaphysics and the logic and the philosophy and the theology of all of it, as much as I like to do that on the side. Uh, <laughs> but I just bask in that um, through this Lenten experience, and it, it's, uh, it can be a very wonderful thing. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Uh, will you guys help me thank Chad? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, when we were looking at all those metaphors in this, Chad was sort of uh, saying that at the end, um, I can't help but think of love songs. Like, think about like in the last five years, let alone the last like 5,000 years, like the mountain of language that we've created to talk about love, right? Like, think about every love song. It has its own metaphor, a little hook, a little chorus, a little image of what love is, you know. What's the Chris Stapleton? Uh, you're strawberry, you're sweet like strawberry wine, Tennessee whiskey, I don't know. I, I shouldn't try to quote country songs because they're really not in my wheelhouse. I don't really listen to a lot of love songs, but that's another thing altogether. Um, anyway, uh, what I'm trying to say is like, like humanity, like, right, like we reach for language and we try to grab these ideas to help us get our hands on a mystery. Love is a, is a mystery, which doesn't mean we can't know it or experience it. It just means that you can't pin it down. You can't contain it, right? Um, you can move toward it. You can live in it. You can appreciate it. You can surrender to it. But I don't know that you can pin it down perfectly, like, you, like a schematic, right? And I think about that with the way that the church has grappled with what's happening in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And our, our hope for today was not that you would maybe be able to, like, pass a test on historical theology, but that maybe just being sort of exposed to some of that, um, we would recognize as a community that, in our history for 2,000 years, we've been grappling with this mystery. And thank God, uh, we've developed language that fits different contexts and different times to help us move toward that mystery. I think of these as like pathways of language toward a center, which is the love of God revealed through Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And so uh, we wanted to expose our community to that a little bit today. We're not gonna do more of that next week. Like, that was like a bit of a deep dive, look under the hood for a moment and we'll get back to sort of more of a regular pattern of conversation in the weeks ahead. Uh, but we wanted to do that. And then this week and every week of Lent, um, we want to not just use language as a pathway into the meaning there, uh, but we actually want to come to the meal that Jesus gave us that we call communion or Eucharist. Because um, we have intellects, and I think we're supposed to use them. We have language, and I think we're supposed to use it. Uh, but God also gave this thing that we experience in our bodies, that we taste and we eat. And through a, a, a moment at a table, we're invited to meditate on the love of God revealed through Jesus. And that's how we wanted to end uh, today. So uh, I'll invite those who are going to serve you to come up and join me up here. And uh, while they do that, I just want to remind you that when Jesus was with his friends on the eve before his own death, uh, he didn't just give them language or ideas. He gave them a meal. And he took a loaf of bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took a cup, 
And he used the language of covenant, which is strong language for promise or faithfulness. He said, this is the cup of a new covenant. It's a promise that God makes that um, if we see it in Jesus, we can trust it now. It's a promise that God makes that he is with us and for us and that he's not backing down or giving up on us and that he's always welcoming us into that reconciliation um, even at this table. And so he said, this is the cup of a new covenant. Uh, Take and drink. And when you do these things, remember me. And that's our heart tonight. Uh, So I'll pray for these elements and then I'll serve the ones who are going to serve you. And then when they kind of get to their stations, you're welcome to get out of your seat if you'd like to and come forward and hold out your hand and receive and be grateful. Let's pray. Loving God, I thank you for uh, the inheritance that we receive in this moment of 2,000 years of followers of Jesus, of members of this fellowship that goes back in time wrestling with, grappling with, bringing their, their best thoughts, their greatest work to the mystery of what you've done for us in Jesus. And I thank you for the, the space that that history creates, the expansiveness of that tradition that invites us into the mystery that's at the center of it. And so I pray today as we come forward to this meal that this bread and cup would be for us the body and blood of Jesus. And I, I know those might be strange or bizarre ways for someone to think about this experience, but what we trust there is that you're saying that something in the, in, the, in the lived experience of Jesus and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is for us because you are for us. And this is a table of forgiveness and reconciliation, of grace and peace, and we're grateful. So as we come forward and receive this meal, I pray that you do whatever you might want to do in us tonight to have that effect on us tonight. And we pray through Christ. Amen.